It was crazy. Super fake. Absolutely loved it. Get it done because you are learning as you're doing. Flying in the clouds. Seven times China champion. 85% action, 15% reflection. China for China. Work, 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 work. You are in the center of everything fascinating that's happening in the world. Welcome to Between Meetings, a series of on-the-go interviews where we explore the world of innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Meren Danka. Today's interview was Rachel Dado, partner at EY Fabernolo. She's a driven, authentic, and multicultural C-level executive with 10-plus years of experience building innovative businesses in China. Her responsibilities have covered management, sales, and marketing in various industries covering F&B distribution, fashion retail, digital marketing, and education. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. It's been really, really long time. Just to give a quick story behind this specific episode, when I was starting out, I was thinking about to do the series of interviews. Um, you were the first one on the list. And uh, two years later, <laughs> it's finally happening, which is yeah. very exciting. And that actually shows how busy you are. But we're going to be talking a bit about that later. Um, mm. But let's start with your China story. When did you come to China? Why did you come to China? And when did it happen? <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I grew up, actually grew up in Chinatown in Paris. So uh, I was a little bit, I think, sensitized with Chinese culture and I studied Kung Fu for a very long time at very high level. And uh, a lot of my friends were actually from Chinese origin. So I think that I had already, you know, got some interest about China. In 2007, I had the chance to move to China with my boyfriend and his family at the time. So it was purely like, you know, kind of opportunistic. And I went here to study and to work and then went back to France for two years and then moved back to China permanently in 2011. So I've been here since 2011 uh, and pretty much done all my working life um, here in China. So I would say that there are things that bring you to China, probably an idea, you know, of what China is like. And there are things that keep you in China. <laughs> it's totally different. Uh, what really kept me in China is this feeling that, that you are in the center of everything fascinating that's happening in the world and just this you know, just the, the vibrance and um, number of opportunities that I got here uh, were just something that kept me, you know, going and going for, for so long. And the story continues. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And I know that your uh, childhood dream was uh, to visit the Shaolin Temple. <laughs> I think probably you, you, you know, experienced that one when you were a kid, right? You, you trained to be a Shaolin monk. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and that dream came true, not actually that long time ago. Yeah, yeah that's uh, true. How did you feel? It was crazy. Like, it was crazy. I, so, you know, I trained Kung Fu for, you know, more than 10 years in France. And oh, wow. my, my uh, master was like, seven times China champion and she had actually you know played in movies with Jet Li so she was oh, wow. uh, yeah <laughs> pretty pretty out there you know and uh, and so um, you know I grew up you know watching Bruce Lee Jet Li movies and that was I identified with those guys you know 
<laughs> I totally identified with those guys. And so coming to China, I didn't actually find, you know, the right school or whatever. So I wasn't training on a regular basis. I, I started on another path with yoga, but that always kind of kept, uh, stayed as a dream. And um, I first uh, trained in a temple in Dali, uh, in Yunnan. Uh, and for three days and I just absolutely loved it and then in 2020 I had the opportunity to go to Shaolin Temple. I was expecting it to be super fake. I was expecting it to be like super touristic and super fake. Actually it wasn't. First of all because it was 2020 there was not a lot of people actually visiting the temple and second um, it's a working temple so so the monks are, you know, practicing and they are, uh, they are living in the temple, they are practicing meditation, they are practicing Kung Fu. And so it's totally, and they bring you, so we got a chance to train with one of the masters and he brought us to like one of the back alley, backyards of the temple. Suddenly you're by yourself, completely away from the tourists and you're training and that was just amazing. And um, the, the magic really happened. I think the magic really, really happened. And uh, the abbot knew that uh, there were foreigners there, so mm -hmm. he arranged to offer us his book in English, which then you read about the story of Shaolin Temple, and you are—it's even stronger, I think. And my master like offered me one of the beads uh, necklaces, and then I was like <laughs> flying in the clouds. It was so intense. It was so good. For how many days? Just one day. Ah, uh, just one day. Yeah, just one day. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, but that was like, I don't know, 10 years of buildup and then phew, like wow. explosion. Wow, that's yeah. super cool. That's awesome. Entrepreneurship is a really big part of your life. <laughs> and I'm just curious to know, is it because something that you've been passionate about for mm. a really long time or just because in China back in 2010, 15, there were so many opportunities and yeah. everyone was doing business and you were thinking like, why not me? That's such a good question. Uh, so a, a bit of background, my father is a psychoanalyst and my mother was a film editor. So nothing to do with entrepreneurship, with tech or anything like that. And uh, it, uh, it, I got, I think first I got the opportunity. I met someone that, I, that was doing something cool and that I wanted to be part of. But it's even after I became co-founder of Lee Homa, of that company, I still couldn't feel like I was an entrepreneur. And what actually made me start to feel like I was an entrepreneur was actually connecting with the other entrepreneur through Startup Grind. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was really the turning point because before being part, like a tight part of Startup Grind community, I just felt like I was trying to do something on my own, but I didn't. I had a full-time job on the side and I didn't really feel like, be, like I was an entrepreneur. And thanks to surrounding myself with people like you, people like Florian, like Eric, like people who were really building their company and, and feeling like entrepreneurs and having those conversations about, you know, fundraising and growth hacking and all these things, then I started to feel like I was an entrepreneur. But it took a, it took a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tell me more about a couple of projects or startups that you were a part of and what was your biggest learning? Uh, uh, being an entrepreneur totally changed my life. Totally changed my life, my relationship to uh, what people call work, which, <laughs> which is probably a lot more than that. Uh, and also um, 
expanded my competencies and my capabilities both on like I would say mental level and on a professional level to a way that I don't think I would have achieved in uh, otherwise. Um, so I was part of my, my first uh, startup that I was co-founder was Li Hama, uh, mm-hmm. which was a really fun project, uh, uh, which was about gamifying advertising. And we ended up with, you know, 400 clients, like two teams, Shanghai, Beijing, developers in the rest of Asia. So that was pretty good. And we were invested by SOSV and went through China Accelerator, which was yeah, a really, really big and important part of the journey. Um, and my second uh, journey was the concept lab and you know I had learned so many things with Li Hama I think first was around you know picking your founding team mm-hmm. um, uh, so I did things very differently on the second project and I picked people that I had worked with before and that I had like high you know admiration for um, then, you know, the second learning was obviously, as every first-time entrepreneur, we over-engineered the first product. We launched too late and we didn't consider business model. So I did very, totally the opposite with the second one. With the second startup, I built in Lean. We actually, we sold the programs before we had the programs mm-hmm. and we were cash flow positive and we were generating revenue before we even started actually operating the business. So it was a kind of building. I chose that as a building to really make things very, very differently. So, uh, so many things that you would learn through that. Um, things that still serve me today uh, is uh, get into action. It's uh, 80%, 85% action, 15% reflection, I would say, where for European, (laughs) it's not the same ratio at all. Usually for Europeans, it's like maybe 50% reflection, 50% action if you're lucky. (laughs) So that's like one thing, get it done because you are learning as you're doing and uh, the market is moving too fast for you to wait it out and observe it. So you, if you want to be in the market, you want to influence the market, then you gotta be you got to be acting on the market in connection with users and consumers. Um, that's maybe one of the major, major one. And the second one is your, when you're founding a company, everything depends on you. So take care of yourself, take care of yourself um, and consider that you are the first asset of the company. So even if you are not, you are not the type of people that that tend to, you know, particularly pay attention to themselves, then tell yourself you are the first asset of the company Mm -hmm. and you need to invest on that asset and to to, to groom and take care of that asset because it's just a fundamental, the company can't function without that. Brilliant. Those are the golden <laughs> tips. Faber Noel is a new big chapter in your life. Yes. From innovation consulting director to partner and China uh, managing director just in a few years. Yeah. Incredible story. <laughs> but I guess that's the result of really, really hard work. So what is the most challenging and the most exciting part of being on a team of a fast growing company in Shanghai? Yeah, gosh, yeah. Um, uh, it's as I think you said you summarized you summarized super well. It's exhausting and it's so exciting. 
Um, I think I had a chance with Fabernovo that the people who, uh, I guess, were my boss were, were entrepreneurs themselves and they understood that what would drive me was to give me a lot of space. Uh, so I pretty much had like, you know, a bottom line and a top line <laughs> and that and anything in between was kind of um, a lot of space for me to invent new offers, to hire the people that I thought were the right people for the team, to, uh, you know, go get the clients that would, you know, make me excited, to, you know, do events and be part of the community and invite the community over to, uh, to, to make our space like kind of a little bit like what we hope is a bit of a platform or magnet for the ecosystem. So I got super lucky into that and that was something that allowed me to um, stay like driven, focused for so long, like for a very long time, despite everything that we lived, uh, hyper growth in 2018, 2019, dip in 2020, but we were still profitable. And then 2021 was again, like super high growth year in 2022. Now we're going to more difficult times again. So it was like, uh, it's been a very, uh, uh, yeah, very, very exhilarating and very in exciting time. Yeah, I think. Does Do you have enough time? Question? Yeah. Do you have enough time to sleep? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that's also what, what, what William was saying yesterday. Like when you're a startup, you need to choose between eating, sleeping, exercising and socializing and work. And usually you choose work, 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 work. <laughs> so. And that's why this interview is happening after two years. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Great. Um, so you're in charge of supporting your clients when they go through their digital transformation, right? Mm. Through innovation consulting and digital marketing. So what are the, who are your clients and what are the challenges they usually face? Yeah. Uh, so I like to think about our work as uh, we are trying to bring clients into territories that they have not gone before. So depending on kind of their business, uh, their um, maturity, sometimes we are kind of opening and pioneering new things on the market with them. And sometimes we are trying to help them to catch up, right, uh, with, uh, with the advancement of the market. Um, we work mainly with multinationals, that's true, uh, here in China. So a lot of the, the, the pain points or maybe the, the, the things they are trying to solve is localizing appropriately for the mm -hmm. Chinese market um, in terms of what type of products and, and activations and marketing they should be you know, doing here to be successful. Second is being at China speed. <laughs> so accelerating, we work a lot on agility and agile ways of working. So accelerating the way that they go from, you know, uh, planning all the way to learning and planning again, um, so that they, they are competitive here. Uh, and then there are two, two types of transformation that we support with. Is one is digital, which has been there for 20 years. And more and more we see clients paying more genuine attention to, to environmental concerns. Mm -hmm. I'm saying genuine because I think in the past years maybe was um, a bit more focused on the communication side. I think... 
I think in the past couple of years, it was maybe more focused on the uh, on the communication side, but we see now that they are really, really making the move to make you know, ESG a core part of their business models and their considerations on a strategic level. So it's quite interesting. Um, so practically speaking, you know, we would do digital roadmaps, we would, you know, operate their, their social media accounts and we also build, you know, a lot of their digital assets like their WeChat mini programs and things like that. You mentioned localization and we already talked a lot about localization and yeah. it seems like lots of multinationals are struggling with this, right? And I think agencies as well struggling to explain why <laughs> it's important and um, I just want to hear what the common mistakes they do um, and how you address those questions. Um, so one of the challenges that they are, uh, I guess, facing is how different China market actually is. Uh, and it's been increasingly different in the past two years as it was before. There's a very, very big, big decoupling. So it's super difficult to get people in and out of China on the logistic and also cost side. And also, unfortunately, I think China doesn't have the same attraction as it had before. So it kind of all got together to say that there is less and less, I think, uh, foreign executives that are actually able to come in China to take roles in China but also to come and visit and see the market and also money flow is not super easy uh, goods flow with all the disruptions connected with COVID was really uh, challenging and data flow with you know the PIPL and CSL uh, new laws uh, makes it that they have to actually have different databases and different IT systems for China so China is becoming really more and more and more of a bubble on top of what was always there that the digital ecosystem is different we don't have the GAFA we have the VATX uh, that the that the cultural um, specificities are actually very strong mm -hmm. um, so that was always there but I think in the past two years this decoupling is, is huge and so we see multinationals are taking different steps to kind of um, manage that um, China teams have more autonomy than before. I think this is for sure um, because there is less visibility, but there is also a bit less trust between China team and global teams because there is less visibility and less exchanges just in general. And to expand a little bit more on the challenges that MNCs and other local public companies also facing at, at the moment, mm -hmm. right? After all this COVID restriction, lockdowns, uh, closed borders, um, decoupling. So what you observe in the market, what are the trends? Where are the company going? Which direction they are taking? Yeah, um, a couple of things maybe. The, the, the Chinese companies that have primarily, you know, presence on the domestic market, they still enjoy, you know, reasonably strong consumption and, and, uh, and power over here. Uh, and, you know, there are so many markets that are still um, really growing and sophisticating. I mean, just yesterday we published a study about that we call sophistication, like sophistication of the coffee market in China. And this is one of the kind of miracle stories that the market grew tenfold in 10 years. Now we are, you know, in first and second tier city, people consume coffee at the same rate as the US. Like these are things for a millennial tea culture as China is, it's something I think few people could have envisioned to become at this scale. So this 
this sophistication of Chinese consumers and everything that goes with it is absolutely there and is continuing. And um, as long as uh, foreign brands and multinationals can, you know, be authentic and adopt, you know, local taste, adapt to local taste, you know, that's the fundamental key to success for here. Um, after all, you know, it's the second biggest economy and there's a billion people here. It's, I think it's normal to adapt your product <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, so definitely, and I think for sure some Chinese companies are trying to go abroad uh, and starting with Southeast uh, Asia as well. Uh, so that's still, you know, that's still going on. Uh, but I think there's still a bit of uncertainty to how things will unfold here. Um, and what we see, some multinationals are um, uh, maybe managing their investment a little bit differently than they were doing before. Um, and perhaps also trying to de-risk the non-China business that's connected with China. So, for example, producing in China for the rest of the world, they are trying to find alternatives uh, to that in order to, to de-risk. So I think more and more China for China is kind of the model that, that, that companies are setting up to, to de-risk and optimize their operations. Rachel, I always enjoy your insights, your sharing. <laughs> super interesting, super cool. So I look forward to the next one. Me too, me too, Marianne. Thanks for waiting two years <laughs> until we can do this and uh, go through the storm and uh, not get any accidents today. <laughs>